it's definitely going to be right in the Rice Krispies, Frosted Flakes, uh, Shredded Mini Wheats, yeah. uh, Raisin Bran. You just named off my four favorite, brother. Yeah, yeah. So again, the leverage that we have is somewhat unique. And again, that's where I make those statements around at some point in time, somebody needs to stand up for corporate the lack of a culture of democracy is what I worry about even more than anything else because there should be a five alarm neon sign right now about all the issues around democracy and there isn't. I'm very happy to say that during COVID almost all of those issues were resolved with compliance. We went to the employers and said these are the things you need to do and they did it because they understand their their, the safety of their workers puts their work at risk. Some economy literature that refer to them as an underground economy. I think that's just a misnomer. Because there's nothing, a lot of what they do is actually pretty much in the open. If anything, I think they are overexposed. I think they are, they are visible. You step out of your home, you see them everywhere. So there's nothing visible about this. There's nothing underground about this either. There is a lot of potential for the transformation of the gig economy in Ukraine right now via this power of unity and power of many voices coming together and claiming their needs and claiming the vision that they, that they have. There was always a deep desire for the labor movement to be act, interacting much more uh, substantially with Occupy. Here we have a movement that's happening right down the street in downtown Manhattan that they could educate so many of the participants of Occupy on labor, on the struggles happening in New York City and across the country. Hello there. I'm your host, Mel Smith, from the Labor Radio Podcast Network, a group of over 130 shows from all over the globe spanning a large range of topics. Welcome to this week's Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Today, we have six great segments for you, and we're starting off with fresh news from the picket line. The BCTGM's Bakers Workers Local 3G president, Trevor Biddleman, called into Your Rights at Work from Battle Creek, Michigan. He reports on the strike against Kellogg's, the demands of the workers, and also builds some solidarity with people calling into the show. Then, we have Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers on the State of the Unions. Weingarten discusses what's going on at Capitol Hill and what it means for the labor movement. Next up, we hear from the New York AFL-CIO's Union Strong, where the commissioner of the New York Department of Labor, Roberta Reardon, discusses unemployment as well as how the DOL has been addressing worker safety concerns as more people are going back to work. For the next two shows, we're going to have to zoom out a bit and look at two different countries and their own informal economies. On the Solidarity Center's podcast, Banga, one of the founders of the Federation of the Informal Workers Organizations of Nigeria, speaks from the capital Lagos. Banga explains the Nigerian informal economy, its problems, and how his organization helps those who work within it. A whole continent away, the Fair Work podcast contextualizes Ukraine's informal economy with regards to its Soviet history and where its labor movement fits in with its political movements. Lastly, we are following up with the second part of the Legacy of Occupy Wall Street from Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. Guests Ruth Milkman and Nastaran Mohit continue the conversation on the labor movement's relationship with Occupy and its lasting impacts on social movements today. Without further ado, here is this week's Labor Radio Podcast Weekly.
Chris Garlock here, and oh my God, it looks like Ed Smith. Welcome back, Ed. It is good to be back, brother. I've missed you the last few weeks. Let's add to the conversation Trevor Biddleman. He's president of BCTGM. That's the Baker's Local 3G in Battle Creek, Michigan. And Trevor, I don't know, are we finding you on the picket line? or where? Well, actually, I'm back in my office now. I apologize for being a little late. Zoom decided it wanted to give me a computer update. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's throw Zoom under the bus, brother. Let's throw Zoom under the bus. <laughs> Not to worry. I appreciate that. I know, I know you've been out on the picket line. Now, y'all went out on, I think it was Tuesday, midnight on Monday, early Tuesday morning. I have to be honest with you, Trevor, when I saw the news on Tuesday... I thought I'd gone into a time warp because I thought this must be the Baker strike from, you know, before. And then I realized, oh, no, this is a completely different strike. This is not Nabisco. This is Kellogg. So tell us about, uh, I think it's 1,400 members, five different sites. You're, of course, there at Ground Zero and, and Battle Creek, a serial city, I think they call it, right? Yes. Yep. That's what we've been historically known as. Uh, you have Post that was started here, Kellogg that was started here, Ralston's was here forever. So, yep, we are the serial city capital of the world. That's even known if you go across seas, people know where we are. Got your Rice Krispies and your Frosted Flakes, your Corn Flakes, all that good stuff. Ooh. But uh, your folks, a lot of your folks I know have been working, like you got multi-generations, fathers, sons, probably grandsons. What is it that, that got your members to uh, to walk out the door? This I'm time? actually uh, a fourth-generation worker myself. I have seen the de- deterioration of really how they treat people. That's really where the biggest piece of this is. On top of the fact that they were just insisting upon what they didn't believe was concessionary, but a two-tier benefited system to which current employees that had uh, a path to our premium benefits was going to be taken away. Same with a pension. They wanted to take that path away for some current folks and also all future folks. And so really our our message here is the future is not for sale. And I'm not here really fighting for me. I'm here fighting for we. And I think that's something that the labor movement as a whole needs to start remembering. I've talked to a lot of people over the years and they used to talk about protecting the unborn. And we really have to stop doing that as a labor movement. And that's really where my members are. They have been very clear with us when they set us to the table, uh, even as last year, you know, we have to stop making working conditions worse for those that are coming after us. And that's what we're here fighting over is we're not going to have, like I said, as a fourth generation employee, if I want to have my, any of my sons or daughters decide to work here as a fifth generation employee, why on earth would I want that to have less? Especially when I'm I'm working for a company that makes millions and billions in profits. They pay out billions in dividends. They can afford this. This is something that they can afford very easily. They just don't want to do it anymore. And again, it comes down to the disrespect that they have been showing us for at least the last 15 to 20 years. Let's take a we'll go ahead and welcome to Your Rights at Work. Thanks for, for calling in. What's your name? My name is Milagros Garcia, and I'm listening to this young man uh, speak. And when he says stand up and fight, 
I will say I agree 100% in my history. And I'm, I'm up there now in, in years. I have led many and been responsible for many strikers. I'm a nurse, and we have struck our asses off, but we had to for better conditions, for better health care for everybody. Now, let me ask you a question. I've been eating um, special cake for a very long time. Is that part of your brand? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm ma'am. You're going to have to hold I'm off done. on the special I'm cake. Done. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. I'm one of those kind of people. When I ask a question, I get the answer I want. I'm done with it. I will never right. buy another one, and the one I have is being in the garbage tonight. Now, let's be clear now. It's, it's, well, you, you, you can go ahead and eat what you already got, right, Trevor? That's okay. Just yep. uh, hold, hold off on getting any new stuff, and then once once Trevor and his brothers and sisters get what they want, then I think they're going to want you to go out and buy plenty of special cake, right, Trevor? Oh, yeah. Yep. I'll buy oh, it yeah. by the truckload and send you some. <laughs> you're going to get you're gonna get what you want, and it's not what you want. It's going to be so damn close to it, they're going to wish they had never done it. Yes. All you got to do is stand up and do what you're doing. You're going to be fine. Thank you so much for the call and the sentiment. Appreciate that. Trevor, how does it make you feel to hear that kind of support from here in Washington, D.C.? Oh, I love hearing it. And again, it's something that we've been seeing day in and day out here. Um, It was actually something that was a question that some of my members had. Me, myself, I knew it was an issue. Again, I I spent time on the Labor Council. There's been a sleeping labor movement in this Uh area. I'm just waiting for more of a winnable fight. And again, that's really one of the main reasons we have what we have. I know earlier you mentioned there was five facilities, but there's actually only four involved. Four, sorry. Yep, my bad, my bad. Um, But we produce 80% of their most six profitable cereals. It's definitely going to be right in the Rice Krispies, Frosted Flakes, uh, Shredded Mini Wheats, yep. uh, Raisin Bran. You just named uh, off my four favorite, brother. Yeah, yeah. So, again, the leverage that we have is somewhat unique. And, again, that's where I make those statements around at some point in time, somebody needs to stand up to corporate greed. That's that, and, right. And, We're going to want to stay in touch with you and love to have you back with either a, a victory report or a solidarity report. All right, brother? Absolutely. Anytime. And I thank you very much for uh, having me. I appreciate all the support and thanks a lot to the, the nurse that called in. And yep, if she's on strike anywhere, tell her to let me know and I will be there. Solidarity, right? Yep. Solidarity. Thanks, Trevor. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. All right. That's Trevor Biddleman. He's president of BCTGM. That's the Baker's Local 3 in Battle Creek, Michigan. This is State of the Unions. I'm Tim Schlittner. And I'm Carolyn Bob. We are very honored and excited to be joined by our special guest today, the president of the 1.7 million member American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten. Randy, thanks for being our guest today. It's great to be with you, Tim and Carolyn, and it's great to be doing the right. State of the Union podcast. So I'm really honored to be with you and to be with the AFL. Great. I wanted to get your take on the current impasse in Congress on this Build Back Better agenda and what is the path forward for the labor movement, working families issues. Joe Biden has a robust transformational agenda that he has proposed to help Americans thrive. And it is as transformational for our era as the New Deal was in the 1930s and as the War on Poverty was in the 1960s. And 
with transformation or an attempt to transform comes real struggle because moving from the status quo is really hard. And it's harder in a period of time when the Democrats have very small majorities, razor thin. And it's harder when there's no one to work with because the Republican Party or parts of it have been fueled by a big lie that Trump told, which is an anti-democratic lie that he won an election that he lost. And so there's big pieces of that agenda that any of those pieces are hard to get anytime. Look at what happened in the 60s in terms of trying to get the voting rights bill. We forget what happened in the 30s. Social Security wasn't what it is now. Medicare wasn't what it is now. These things are hard to get. And so the labor movement is working to try to get both the bipartisan infrastructure plan and the Build Back Better plan. And we're working hard to support the legislatures who want to try to get this done, as well as the PRO Act, as well as the Freedom to Vote Act, as well as the other pieces that are about empowering people and communities to have a foothold into the middle class have a way of taking on climate issues and building up our economy. What I'm proud about is that we're not having the conversation about climate versus jobs. We've gotten to agreements on how we help make sure we have a sustainable climate and grow jobs and have a just transition, how we have paid leave, how we nurture a care economy, how we have childcare, how we have pre-K, how we reduce the costs of healthcare. All of these things are really important in terms of the human infrastructure, as well as the traditional, we call it traditional infrastructure, but how many times was there a Trump infrastructure week that never materialized? So I think we're getting close. I think that just like with any other kind of transformation, there's going to be lots of starts and stops and starts and stops. But the vast majority of Democrats who serve in elected positions in Washington, want both to transform the economy the way in which Build Back Better does, as well as the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And it's really a matter of how we get these things through the finish line. Exactly. So with the labor movement obviously plays a big part in politics and in our community. So when you think about all these things combined, like how do you assess the state of the labor movement right now? And what are the things that are giving you hope? And what are some of those things that might worry you a bit? The labor movement is still the biggest member-driven, people-driven movement in the United States of America. And even with our density having fallen in the last several decades, even with the huge assault on the movement by the right wing, by the billionaires, by corporate America, by the Betsy DeVosses and her crew, and a very hostile Supreme Court. We're still the biggest member-driven movement in America. And so the opportunity is that more people want it the Gallup poll every year, you see a real increase in the last 10 years that over 65% of Americans approve of unions. I think it was 68%. And that's even higher for younger people this year, the highest numbers in a couple of decades. So how do we make that kind of collective associational rights, collective bargaining, the concept that together we can accomplish more than we can do individually, the collective class, 
about how do we help more Americans access it? And so part of that is a change in the rules of the game. And part of that is the kind of robust organizing that those of us in the movement right now have to do and have to take risks of doing. That's the good news. The bad news is that all those obstacles that I talked about before, including the fact that the power elite don't want to give up power. They like the inequity. As much as they may sometimes say, woe is me, they look at the fights we're having to get the PROAP passed. So the power elite don't want to give up the power they have. They don't want to give up the advantages they have. They don't want to change the rules of the game. And then on top of that, you have all of the different economic shoals, the recessions from not only in 2008, but for in terms of what has happened in terms of manufacturing, globalization, technology. So there's a lot of adversity. There's a lot of challenge. But I do believe that if people have the ability to form unions, that we can change some of the rules of the road. People want unions. And so we have a better future ahead of us than behind us. I've heard you talk a lot lately about democracy, and I'm wondering your assessment on how vulnerable the American democracy is today, given all those factors, and what the labor movement's role is in preserving, protecting, and strengthening democracy. So democracy is the way in which freedom flourishes. Without democracy, the people that have voice and agency are only the people who are powerful. If we want every working family or worker or every American to have a voice, to have freedom, we need to have a democracy that enables that. And so I am very concerned that we are following into the pathway of other democracies in terms of the undermining of of the way in which democracies flourish. And that is not just voter suppression and gerrymandering and the threats to election workers, the big lie. It's not just that. It is, in some ways, what Stacey Abrams has said. She said so many things, but this has really stuck with me. She said this at a forum we had this summer, which is, we don't have a culture of civic engagement. Even when we can get people to vote, sometimes they believe that vote is the first and the last of it. And the moment that what they hope would happen doesn't happen immediately after they vote, there's a skepticism, there's a disappointment, there's a sense of why is it even worth it? So the sense of malaise, the lack of a culture of democracy is what I worry about even more than anything else, because there should be a five alarm neon sign right now about all the issues around democracy. And there is and so if we can get the Freedom to Vote Act, that is going to help a lot in terms of changing the rules. But we have to create a culture of civic engagement that people see that voice and agency comes economically from their union and from participation in a union that they can create fairness at the workplace. But fairness in life and the way in which we can have a better life for everyone, the way in which people are respected deeply is by having the muscle of democracy and the muscle of engagement and participation within our governmental structures. All right. Thank you, Randy. It's good to see Thank you. Thank you. AFL-CIO. I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong.
On today's podcast, our guest is the commissioner of the New York State Department of Labor, Roberta Reardon. Commissioner, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me back. I love doing this. Yes, and welcome back. You were one of our first guests when we first started a couple of years ago. Yes, it was one of the first fun. So I want to talk to you about the unemployed, job creation, workplace safety, the Mm -hmm. role that unions have in all of this. But first, for the New York State AFL-CEO, we have some pressing issues that are before you right now, one of them being farm workers overtime. So right now, the threshold for farm workers is at 60 hours. Correct. And as our position, which we're very insistent on, very passionate on, and what we've been fighting for is to have the threshold lowered to 40 hours Mm -hmm. because we feel that's only fair. That's how other workers, that's that's the threshold for everyone else. Why shouldn't it be for farm workers? I know the wage board is going to ultimately make that decision. There was some postponement in those meetings related to COVID. So where are we now and when are we going to know what's going to happen with that with the wage board? So we paused the wage board last December for a number of reasons, but definitely the pandemic was a very strong factor in doing that. And we are picking up with the same wage board. We think that we will probably start no earlier than November and definitely by statute no later than December 15th. We have been gathering a lot of the data that everybody at the table asked for. And that has, you know, takes a little time to get it. It doesn't start getting reported till September. So we're actually bringing it in right now. And we will resume those hearings and have a report out and a decision by the end of the year, by December. What's It's due December 31st. I hope we don't do it on New Year's Eve again. <laughs> so we will have something by the end of this we year. should, yes. In a couple of months. That's good to hear. So also right after Labor Day, nearly one and a half million New Yorkers saw their unemployment benefits either drastically decrease or disappear altogether. This was due to the expiration of the uh, federal funding, the federal programs, um, you must have heard stories of hardship, Yes, I'm sure. So how is DOL responding to that? So we started probably early in the summer. We started messaging on our social media channels, YouTubes, all those, and of course on our website. And when we talked to people on the phone, we reminded them that the federal benefits were to end the first week, the end of the first week of September. And we kept consistently messaging because we didn't want people to be surprised. And the problem for us has been that these are federally mandated benefits, so we can't, it's not the state unemployment insurance fund. During the pandemic, there were actually six different benefit funds that we were running instead of the one. Five of them stopped because they were all federally funded. So now if a worker is unemployed, they will, of course, be able to collect state UI, but the federal money has gone. And and I really appreciate that this is a difficult time for people. I do think that earlier in the year, everybody assumed by September with the vaccines that we'd be in a different place. Mm-hmm. And we are in a different place. Mm-hmm. It is a much stronger economy now and a much better health-wise, but still we are all dealing with the Delta variant and it does make employment a little dicier. We have a ton of resources for unemployed people and most of them are virtual. We have not reopened the career centers yet. Obviously the Delta variant is making that a a difficult Mm -hmm. thing to do. You talked a little about the apprehension of going back. Mm -hmm. We saw a lot of people decide to retire, just worried about safety. So what what is the agency's role in that to make sure that we are safe at our workplaces and also implementing it, monitoring it and enforcing it, enforcing those rules. First of all, thank you to the AFL-CIO for being such a champion of this law. It is way overdue, of course. The pandemic made it very apparent that we need to have this kind of 
regulation, but it really is to prevent an unsafe workplace should another airborne disease come along, which we know it will, and mm-hmm. we're hardly finished with COVID. In the, If you go on the website, on the DOL website, and just put in HERO Act, you'll see all of the regulations. It's actually pretty easy to comply with. There are things, when do you have to have masks? What's the air quality? How do you take care of that? There are committees that should be formed so the workers have a voice in it. And we are overseeing that. We work with very closely with Department of Health. They are actually doing the regulations on the health side, and then mm-hmm. we enforce it on the safety side. But it is, you know, it's it's just an example of the new world that we're living in. And I hear people all the time talking about COVID. It won't be the last pandemic in the world, and mm-hmm. we have to be ready for it. And we have an example. The COVID, we, we set up a portal during the pandemic. We had 45,000 complaints come in from workers, and we oversaw all of that. I'm very happy to say that during COVID, almost all of those issues were resolved with compliance. We went to the employers and said, these are the things you need to do. And they did it because they understand their, their the safety of their workers puts their work at risk. So nobody wants to harm their workers and lose their business because of it. And that's a good thing. Roberta Reardon, the commissioner of the Department of Labor, thank you very much. We love having you on. We, we know you've got a lot going on and you're very busy. So we do appreciate your time. And we'll make sure that we put the um, links on our podcast so that people can get right to the Department of Labor and go through those resources and hopefully uh, either advance their career or or get employed, get back into the workforce. Thank Thank you you. so much. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. Today, we're focusing on Nigeria, where millions of workers have long supported themselves in the informal economy. I'm so excited to talk with my guest today, Benga, who speaks to us from Nigeria. Benga helped launch an organization in Abuja, the capital, so workers in the informal economy can join together and fight for their rights. Benga and other activists founded the Federation of Informal Workers Organizations of Nigeria, FIWAN, in 2010. Brother Benga, General Secretary and founder of the Federation of Informal Workers Organizations of Nigeria, welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast. Thank you. I want to ask you a little bit more about when, when we say the informal economy, what does that mean? Who are these workers in the informal economy? The informal work happening under pretty much unregulated conditions, unregulated in terms of the fact that there is no defined condition of work like you have in the formal setting when you resume work, when you close, you know your what you're entitled to as a worker, you know your rights as a worker under the labor code. People working, there is really no employment contract with anybody. They are on their own. So the work environments also tend to be very makeshift. Some of the other defining features are the fact that uh, it's very easy to enter into the informal economy. You need little capital. You you don't need so much to maybe rent some organized space or whatever. You can 
manage to find some public space to operate in and all of that to work in the informal sector. Or we can also say a little, a few things about what informal sector is not because there's some confusion. I've read some economic literature that refer to them as an underground economy. I think that's just a misnomer because there's nothing, a lot of what they do is actually pretty much in the open. If anything, I think they are overexposed. I think they are, they are visible. You can see you, you step out of your home, you see them everywhere. By the time you walk about 100 meters, you are likely going to see a bar shop, you're likely going to see a lot of street vendors, you're likely going to encounter some uh, little hairdresser, salon, so on and so forth. So there's nothing visible about this. There's nothing underground about this either. So can you yeah. tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing to fight back against these conditions by organizing workers? We've had to work with uh, different kinds of coalitions at different levels to ensure that these issues are brought into the fore and they receive relevant attention and all of that. We In, in Lagos State, we are working with a group of civil society groups, including progressive academics, and all sorts of people to address some of the specific challenges. Then we also work with uh, an organization that came up in the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak called ASCAP. ASCAP was formed specifically to address issues around the COVID-19, the policies for its containment, and ensuring that people uh, received basic rights of working people are not on a street level violated and so on and so forth. And that also brings to a lot of human rights activists, a lot of progressive academics, some faith-based organizations, and so on and so forth. In Nigeria, we have this, we are pretty much like in the U.S., we have states, and uh, the state governments also have a lot of leverage to make a lot of difference in the life of informal workers. Locally, we have been able to leverage on some of these coalitions to get a lot of support for our members. We have also been able to directly deal with the more flagrant cases of uh, rights violations and such other abuses. So I I will just give an illustration of uh, how some of this networking has helped. During the lockdown, the Lagos State government amazingly started evictions in some communities. So they, they were driving families out of their homes and destroying their homes. We were able to capture that on video. And then we got all the coalition members to put down Twitter. And we tagged as many local and international organizations that actually shamed the Lagos State government to actually stop the evictions right on Twitter. Thank you so much for sharing your incredibly powerful and moving story. Thank you very much. The pleasure actually is mine. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. This week on the Fair Work Podcast, we'll look at the gig economy in Ukraine, at how it emerged, what it looks like now, and what issues workers face. We jump straight in with Svetlana talking about the emergence of the gig economy in Ukraine and its historical roots in the radical changes that happened within the country 
Gig workers in Ukraine face many of the issues that gig workers around the world face. But there are issues that gig workers in Ukraine face which are specific to the context of Ukraine. An issue that is very specific to Ukraine is the fact that the majority of, for example, couriers, the delivery riders, are registered as private entrepreneurs. And so they are uh, responsible also for paying taxes for the income that they make. And so instead of fulfilling their tax obligations as employers, according to the law of Ukraine, the gig companies are play, pay, are making the workers pay the tax on behalf of the gig companies. And this really is an arrangement that benefits gig companies, but that really detracts from the earnings of the workers. And then the workers also carry the responsibility, for example, inspections of their private enterprise or their activities as the private entrepreneur. And so the company also evades any responsibility for that. There is more and more momentum among gig workers realizing that the conditions of their work are intolerable and that more uh, needs to be done about this. There comes a point of boiling and a point of despair. And there come more talks and more discussions among the workers about the creation of some sort of an association of a, or a trade union. Within the context of the gig economy, does it feel like that conversation is happening in a productive way? Ukraine has a complicated relationship with the idea of trade unionism because, because of its Soviet past. And so there is some resistance to the idea of trade unionism because the idea of it was used by the Soviet government to actually further their own um, their own exploitation and their own usurpation and their own extent of power over the people of Ukraine. And unfortunately, with the onset of Ukraine's independence, people were still distrustful of the word combination trade union because it was like part of the old elites. But then, actually, um, trade unions, independent trade unions, became part of the emergence of Ukraine's independence, especially in the mining sector. At the end of the 80s and the beginning of 90s, coal miners united and went on to multiple protests against the working conditions and against delayed wages. And they were dissatisfied with the Soviet government and with the Soviet elite and with the way that things worked in the Soviet Union. And so partly that social movement led by the coal miners and the trade unions and the coal mining sector was crucial to the establishment of the independent, the new independent trade unions that became a huge part of Ukraine's civil society at the beginning of 90s and that are still part of it. And so the independent trade union movement in Ukraine just cleaved itself away from this old Soviet notion of trade unions, and they became this progressive force that was actually calling for reform and that was calling for anti-corruption reform. And the independent unions still are part of this and trying to shift the conversation away from the exploitation and trying to support workers in their struggle for their rights. And I feel like Ukrainians, in many ways, take after the tradition of independent trade unionism. And therefore, unions in the gig economy also are following up on that tradition.
But then I would say that young people and the majority of delivery workers are younger and therefore still have this kind of like lack of awareness of what trade unions can do as an idea and as a and as a power and as a part of civil society those young workers still don't even know much about the rights that they have and it is partly the job of independent unions now and of civil society organizations and of NGOs such as labor initiatives to spread the idea and spread the word about fighting for for labor rights and for greater fairness in Ukraine because just as uh, trade unions were crucial in changing the political landscape at the end of 80s, contributing to Ukraine's independence and to the growth of national movements locally after that, there is a lot of potential for the transformation of, of gig economy in Ukraine right now via this power of, of unity and power of many voices coming together and claiming their needs and claiming the vision that they that they have. This episode was written and produced by Robbie Warren and Svetlana Lunkovich. Our music was composed by Louis Bollet with additional composition by Robbie Warren. Andrew's English voiceover was read by Leonid Stoikov. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 231. Today, we're continuing our in-depth conversation about Occupy Wall Street with two more of our favorite thinkers and organizers. If you missed last week's episode, part one of this series, we encourage you to go back and check it out. For this episode, we're speaking with Ruth Milkman, a labor scholar at CUNY's School of Labor and Urban Studies and co-author of a landmark study on the participants of Occupy Wall Street, and Nasran Mohit, director of organizing with the News Guild of New York and one of the folks who helped connect Zuccotti Park with the cross-currents of the city's labor movement. I, I guess I, I'm, I'm curious about your take as an organizer about what the labor movement's involvement with Occupy was and how those two movements intersected. And do you wish maybe labor had done things differently or maybe taken a different role? I think most of the participation that unions had or their interaction with the movement itself was with rank and file members themselves or at the higher level, the participation was a little bit guarded, as you can imagine. We know that that historically unions are very cautious about how they interact and intersect with social movements. And it is a tricky relationship. Certainly in the beginning, there were some really hopeful moments. There was a time when the TWU bus drivers would refuse to transport those who had been arrested at Zuccotti. And we had leadership of some unions attend meetings here and there. But it was really in those earlier days, I would say, that we saw the most positive response. But on the whole, those who were like actively engaging with the movement were rank and file members and staff, mostly young staffers. There was always a deep desire for the labor movement to be interacting much more uh, substantially with Occupy and seeing all of the opportunities that were right with unions feeling so deflated and defeated. Here we have a movement that's happening right down the street in downtown Manhattan that they could not only visit the park, but meet organizers educate so many of 
the participants of Occupy, on on labor, on the struggles happening in New York City and across the country. I think there were a lot of missed opportunities there. I think getting back to Nastrin's comments on the labor movement, this generation has since then, some people were already involved in the labor movement, but unions are cool again in this generation in a way that was not true yet in 2011, with a few precocious exceptions. But now we've seen the influx of a whole new generation of young people who've chosen to make labor organizing of one sort or another, you know, their focus. And so ironically, the this movement that rejected established institutions and established ways of doing things has now transformed those same institutions and ways of doing things in a really important way. So we have Bernie, we have AOC, we have all the success that has emerged in recent years with organizing journalists, but also the teacher strikes, which were led by this same generation in the red states and actually organized on social media initially. It's come full circle in some ways. I guess I I wanted to get a sense in retrospect when you look at what Occupy accomplished and maybe the type of resonance it had well beyond the the movements and the campaigns themselves. Maybe you could address some of the critiques of the movement that have come out over the past decade or so. It was largely a movement of white activists who were just looking at New York City there who didn't really have very much connection with the the city itself and the working people in the city. I remember that was my biggest criticism from the first time I started joining meetings. And so I think that the message was incredibly powerful and the lack of hierarchy was at times very empowering, I think, for so many people to, to join this space because there weren't the same barriers and limitations that exist in other in other organizations or political parties or jobs, nonprofits. It was so decentralized that it really allowed so many people to join its ranks and learn and grow and but it was it was mostly white folks. <laughs> we know the significant limitations that that presents. It wasn't just the fizzling out of the actual physical space. I think once the loss of the physical space happened, many of the people that were down at Zuccotti didn't really know what to do from there because they weren't connected with any struggles in New York City. And, And I can go on and on about what that eventually led to. And I think a lot of amazing people ended up doing great work over the years. And there were many organizers that were involved in Occupy that actually were from New York City or were part of the labor movement. So they, but they were the exception. So I would say that was the biggest criticism. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a show where we cobble together highlights from the Labor Radio Podcast Network stash of over 130 shows. If you're interested in more labor-related podcasts, check out our website at laborradionetwork.org or use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at laborradionet. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and myself, produced by Chris Garlock, and promoted on social media by Harold Phillips. 
This is Mel Smith for Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, and have a great rest of your weekend.